Static analysis allows for the discovery of issues in a code base without compiling. There have been many generations of static analysis tools. A newer static analysis tool is DeepSource, which automates code reviews, identifies bug risks, and generates pull requests to fix them. Jai Pradesh and Sanket Saurav are founders of DeepSource and join the show to talk through the creation of static analysis tooling and their work on DeepSource. If you want to support Software Engineering Daily more intimately, go to softwaredaily.com and become a paid subscriber. You can get access to all the episodes without ads. Go to softwaredaily.com to learn more. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Hey. The common problems that exist across code bases, the common bugs and anti-patterns and security flaws, what are those common flaws? What are the most common flaws and security bugs that appear? Right. So there are anti-patterns, there are performance problems, there are uh, security vulnerabilities. And these are highly specific to programming languages. Say, to give an example, in Python, for example, if you're using the assert statement, right, you're not supposed to use the assert statement outside of your test files, because if you're using the assert statement to validate client input, like user input, and if you're you know, if you're optimizing your bytecode, these assert statements actually get stripped off and the validation never happens. So this is one instance. So if you're using something like that, that opens up a security vulnerability in your application code. And that's a very general issue that could exist across tons and tons of code bases. I think the goal of what you're doing with DeepSource is, to some extent, find commonalities across code bases that can be analyzed and potentially alleviated. Is that correct? Yep. Talk in a little more detail about what DeepSource does. Sure. So DeepSource is an automated code review tool that helps developers find and fix issues in their code. So we use static analysis and a bunch of other related technologies and integrate with your GitHub account or your GitLab or your Bitbucket account and after you have enabled DeepSource on, on a particular project, whenever you make a pull request, DeepSource will analyze those changes and show you issues that you need to fix. And these issues are, again, performance issues, style issues, anti-patterns, security vulnerabilities, and also helps you automatically fix these issues in like a couple of clicks. So that's, in essence, DeepSource helps you write better code and you can think of it like Grammarly, but for your code, yeah. So I would run deep source at the time of a pull request. This is a classic static code analysis type of tool. There are lots of static code analyzers. What's new about deep source? Sure. So the reason why we started deep source was like you know even as part of our previous company, we tried to use all these static analysis tools. There are like two types of tools. One are these open source linters and tools that are available for programming languages. And the other one on the side are commercial products, right? So we tried all of them and we ended up disabling all of them after like, you know, a few weeks in general. When we figured out, like there were some of the reasons. One was high rate of false positives. Uh, the, with the commercial products, we found really high rate of false positives. That was kind of annoying. and. None of those analyzers were really maintained. Like they were not really up to date. These issues were like the same for years and years. And for on, the, on the other end, the problem with open source linters was it was very hard to configure. You have to, like, you have to have someone in the team to actually maintain it. 
and then the integration was not very smooth like it like in general these open source tools are run as part of your ci systems right which generally like you know messes up your other builds and everything so that's the reason like if you look at say in terms of ci systems right like before 2010 like primarily there was jenkins and it was like hard to configure not a lot of people were like adopting it the adoption was like very slow but on the other end in like you know early like 2011 12 these these days like companies like circle and travis they came and they made it super easy for anybody to set up a ci system and now nowadays like if you set up a project the first thing you do is like you know probably set up a write some test and set up a ci system and we want to do the same for for static analysis like a simple configuration file where you can like manage everything like use any static analysis tool you want like in in as long as the language is supported by us and integrate natively with like your daily code review workflows like with native pull requests like or whenever you run a commit it should run and like most importantly less than 5% false positives is something which we guarantee yeah could you go into the stack a little bit what happens when i actually run deep source sure so the way it works is say first if you have a project that is on either github or gitlab or bitbucket all you need to do is add a file called deepsource.toml and you say that hey i want to enable these analyzers at the moment we support python go ruby and javascript so you say that enable python analyzer give some metadata and that's it and you go to deepsource.io and then you sign up and after you do that we have native integrations with these three providers platform uh, like source code providers at the moment the moment you do that every repository gets a dashboard that will show you like you know these this is the current state of the repo and when the first time you integrate this the an initial analysis runs and it will show you issues that are categorized as anti patterns bug risk performance issues security vulnerabilities style and documentation all of them have like you know detailed issues and where the issue is and a helpful description of what how exactly can a developer fix it and this is one part and after you do that you don't need to configure anything else like whenever any team anyone contributes to that repository like send a commit or a pull request deep source automatically runs and then shows you on how many bugs are you introducing and how many have we like are you fixing and yeah it's a continuous process how do you assemble the static analysis the code paths that you're regarding as buggy or problematic that the things that deep source is actually studying how do you formalize those in the deep source scanner right So we maintain our own analyzers we build our own analyzers and to give an example and let's take a programming language to illustrate this better so for example in python we aggregate first thing is we aggregate all the popular open source tools that exist say for example in python you have pylint you have flakeit you have bandit and a couple of other tools and in addition to that we write our own custom checkers right so the way that each issue when we say that you know so deep source detects over 650 issues in python today so when we say that you know we detect 650 issues what it means is our python analyzers has 650 definitions of these issues and these individual checkers for each of these issues are formalized in in the form of actual code and to go a little bit into how deep source detects these issues is you know we parse asts so when we get your code we convert that the analyzer converts that converts your code into an ast your entire project into an ast form and our analyzers walk on that ast to find these patterns 
So each of these checkers runs against each of your files to find whether any of these patterns are actually existing. And that's how we define an issue on deep source. That, hey, okay, if this is a problem, this is how this is defined here in as part of code. Are there particular languages that are easy to do static analysis for? Well, a lot of lot of languages do come with an inbuilt toolkit or maybe a standard library which provides an easy way to kind of walk over the ASTs. So, for example, Python has has a really good way of doing that. Go, for example, Go has an internal uh, standard library that allows you to do that. So, static analysis generally happens via AST using ASTs. But there are a bunch of other tools as well. There are a bunch of other different kind of techniques that you can use. That, for example, you can use regex as well to find patterns in the code. But in any popular language that has a rich uh, toolkit to operate on ASTs, uh, they are very easy to do static analysis on. And yeah, to add to that, one other thing is there is this misconception that, for example, like you know, like static analysis might be very helpful for dynamic languages like Python or or, or JavaScript or something. And you know, you don't really need it for languages like Rust. On the other end, with the help of static analysis, you can actually find like in, in Rust there is this there's this tool called Clippy that actually finds like around 150 types of issues. If I'm I'm not sure about the accurate number, but something like that, like very large number of issues just using static analysis. Yeah. How do you crawl the AST? Is there are there standard libraries for doing that, or do you have to write your own code to crawl the AST? So, generally, popular programming languages like Python and Go and JavaScript uh, generally have something in their standard library that enables you to transform source code into ASTs and then gives a toolkit to write crawlers, uh, walkers on ASTs, right? In most cases, for example, in Python, the inbuilt toolkit is kind of rudimentary. So what we do is we kind of build on top of, like we built uh, something on top of the standard library and we use a third party library called Asteroid. And then we build something on top of that that suits us. You know, the, we have an internal framework uh, for writing these analyzers, for writing these checkers. So that kind of takes inspiration, builds on top of that so that you know we can do more sophisticated analysis but generally, yeah, most programming languages do give some toolkit, but to do anything sophisticated, you will need to build things on top of that. And that's what we have done. We have done that for Go, we have done that for JavaScript, and uh, the latest uh, general availability release that we did for Ruby, we have done that for Ruby as well. So I'd like to go into a little bit deeper of an example. So let's say, again, I've got a Ruby code base and I make a pull request and I, I'm on GitHub, what is the static analysis tool doing when I make that pull request? Sure. So the first thing happens is GitHub, we, since we have an integration, GitHub notifies us that, hey, uh, via webhooks that there is a pull request that is made to this repository. So what we do is we, our analyzers know that, okay, the change set is from, say, this commit to this commit. First, we first pull the complete repository because though the issues will be shown only on the diff, we still need the whole code base for us to analyze, like understand the, the full tree of, of the code. And after we pull the repository, our analyzers with the AST, like walks through the AST, and we have predefined rules that are being continuously updated. For example, 
Python analyzer at the moment, say, uh, supports somewhere around 570 dip different types of issues. And each of these, these are like different rules written. And what happens is the ASC first will, will be parsed, and then these rules will be matched against. And these are not very simple rules, but complex rules for every single issue. And we keep adding new rules once a while. So the moment if there is a match that, hey, we think that this kind of pattern, if we see in an AST, it could be an anti-pattern or this could be a performance issue. And the analyzer reports the same back to our, our Django server and then, you know, from and, and then it will be displayed in the UI. And we immediately notified back GitHub as well that, hey, we did this and our analyzers found these many issues. And yeah, and a link is generally posted in the in the PR. You click that link, it'll you'll be taken to the deep source dashboard for that specific run and it'll show that hey, you made change to say two files of which we found these five, six issues. And so what's the process of remediation in a little more detail? Like how does the pull request get, how does a, uh, a fix request get generated and, and how do I accept that? Right. So DeepSource has a feature called order fix. So some of these issues that we detect and right now our, our coverage of order fix is like around 25%. So we can automatically fix 25% of the issues that we detect in your code. So if we can detect an issue in your code, then you'll see a button called order fix on the deep source UI. And that UI is directly, you can navigate to the deep source UI for a pull request from your GitHub pull request. So we send a check for each analyzer that you have enabled. So when you, when you go to the deep source UI and you see all the issues that we have detected in a pull request, if an issue can can be automatically fixed, you see an order fix button, you click on order fix, you select all the files that you want to run order fix on in the pull request, and DeepSource takes like a few seconds and generates the fixes for you, right? And, and shows you a diff, right? With each fix as a hunk. And what you can do is, you can go ahead, you can triage that diff and you can select or deselect some hunk if you don't want to apply that fix. And once you have reviewed that, in one more click, you can just make a commit in that pull request with the fixes. This is what happens when DeepSource can fix an issue. If DeepSource cannot fix an issue, and so it will show you how to fix that issue with a very helpful description. So then in general, as a developer, what you do is you go and look at the description, you know how to fix this issue, and then you make a comment fixing that issue, which will trigger DeepSource to analyze your entire chain set again. And in this case, DeepSource won't find that issue again because you have already fixed it. And that's how the workflow happens. So this is how you remediate either automatically using DeepSource's order fix feature or manually by actually changing the code and pushing another commit. It seems like there's some subjectivity in what qualifies as a bug or an error. How do I configure DeepSource to decide what is a bug and what, what is not? Right. So by default, DeepSource has these definitions inbuilt. Like we for each analyzer that you enable on DeepSource, we have a set of issues that we detect that these issues are categorized as these different categories, right? So when your team, let, let's say you start using DeepSource 
and and then when the first time that you run deep source and you see that hey deep source has detected these issues your team can go ahead and triage these issues and say disable some issues if you don't want to or in or or not do that right so you can create these sophisticated ignore rules so you can say that hey ignore this issue in only my test files or ignore this issue in only this particular file pattern or you can say that hey ignore this particular issue across my entire repository right so that's how you tell deep source that hey which issues or which kinds of issues are important to you and in each repository settings you can explicitly declare that hey which are the which categories of the issues do you feel are important like you can turn off style issues for example like if you are using an automated code formatter you can turn off style issues so deep source won't report any stylistic issues because it then understands that hey you are using an automated code code formatter so that is how you tell deep source what is what what do you care about in terms of the issues itself we don't have the ability for for you to define a new issue at the moment but that is going to be in the future soon so that you can define your own issues which you care about and start using deep source to analyze those yeah and to quickly add to that though we don't allow you to create custom issues primarily because it is it is very difficult for like someone to write a rule that has very low rate of false positive in in all the edge cases so but that said we do have a community where we are analyzer team is very active and in case if you find some issues that deep source is not detecting you can just let us know and in in the in the forum and then yeah and we we'll, we'll take care of it and if it makes sense we'll implement it what's your practice for keeping up with all the integrations and different analyzation analysis paths that you have to keep up with in order to give coverage to all these different languages and frameworks sure so one thing which we consciously did was we when we started deep source around one and a half years ago we started with only python we didn't want to support all the languages in a shallow way rather just get one programming language and go really deep into it so we start with python and like 6 months down the line we added support for go and even now deep source supports like you know python go ruby and javascript that's it like we don't really support a lot of languages on the other end the reason again is that we want to detect as many issues as possible and we want to like you know improve support coverage for autofix and all these things so the way we keep up with each of these languages is that i'll give an example for example say when python 3.8 was released like uh, like somewhere around a year ago we added like around eight new rules uh, that was like specific to that language and yeah our analyzer team is like you know continuously evolving whenever and we are like very active in the language communities and forums whenever we find something like you know that's interesting we probably implement it and one of the great place of finding these issues are issues github issues of these static analysis tools that are open source so they constantly fish for like you know some of the things which the tool or the maintainer thinks that probably they shouldn't make it as a part of that tool our team if they find it valuable and if more developers really want it we'd go ahead and implement it You have a pretty large engineering team at this point for for just a 2-year-old company. Tell me about the process of scaling up the team. Right. So the engineering team is divided into two parts. One is the language engineering team that explicitly works on that only works on the analyzers. 
And the other is the platform team that works on the platform. They build the APIs, they build the front-end apps, the web apps that DeepSource uses, that DeepSource serves. So the way that we add new people in the team is for, and, and the, the way that we hire people for the team is different for these two teams. For the language engineering team, we look at people who have worked with programming languages before. So currently in the team, we have people who have contributed to, say, the core Python, C Python itself, or they have contributed to popular open source static analysis tools, and which is where we kind of go and you know look at people who have contributed, and then we reach out. We do a lot of outbound reach out, and for the language team, for the platform team, we look at people who have worked on developer tools because you know the kind of product our our users are developers, so. We look for people who care about developer tools, who have worked on developer tools before and have some evidence that you know they really care about the developer ecosystem itself, right? So generally what we do is most of our hiring happens inbound and through referrals because both Jay and I, we have been part of the startup community for quite some time now. And we have our own network from people who, have, who we have previously worked with. So, so far, a lot of hiring has happened inbound uh, through referrals, but mostly since we are a developer tool, we have a lot of visibility in the developer community. And a lot of hiring comes, a lot of new leads in hiring comes from inbound. That, you know, people who are our users and they see that, hey, DeepSource has these five open positions. They reach back and they say that, hey, you know, I'd like to work with you. And in terms of our personal experience as well, in the beginning, it was just Sanket and I, like we were like both of us were technical, we were writing the code. And like, as I said, like we start with just Python. So we had to, like, as Sanket mentioned, in our language engineering team, we want like people who are really, really specific in the language. And we want someone working on every language all the time. We don't want like one person working on three analyzers at a time. So that's the reason, depending on the number of languages we support, we will need to add bandwidth there. In terms of the platform engineering team, to be honest, in the beginning, we actually had like one front-end developer, one back-end developer, one person to take care of infrastructure. What, what started happening was in case like the user group, users were growing and every day there were like many feature requests and everything coming up. And what we realized was we had to, we value support a lot. So whenever somebody raised an issue, we generally try to reply back as soon as possible. And at this time, how what we realized is that, you know, probably we should add more people to the team. So in case, say, if one front-end developer is not available, like, you know, every other thing does not get stuck. So that's the reason. And at the moment, we are like around 18 people. So yeah, that was our experience, yeah. Have there been any interesting scalability problems as you've uh, grown the company and grown the project? Right. One of the problems that, you know, one of the challenges that we had was, you know, due to the nature of the product, we started seeing a lot of lot of customers, a lot of uh, potential customers asking for us for an on-premise version of the product. So we actually haven't had any scalability problems in the pro, uh, in, in the, on our, for our on-cloud version because you know, we kind of built the infrastructure in a way and the orchestration, the analysis orchestration layer in a way that it is auto-scale and you know, we kind of have some intelligent algorithms which kind of predict how many analysis are we running parallel and are we expecting and then scale the uh, scalar compute like that. 
But uh, in terms of product scalability, I think that is one of the challenges that that we saw that, you know, we suddenly saw a surge of people asking for an on-premise version of DeepSource. And we, we had to make a decision that we had to go on-premise like very, very quickly. And that is what we are working on. And, and then again, even if we had started, like we had kept in mind that we had to go on-premise someday. So most of the services that we use internally, we don't use a lot of external services, except for maybe, uh, you know, Amazon S3 or SES for sending emails. But still, packaging on-premise has been one of the challenges that we have been facing so that, you know, we can scale to larger companies. You know, we can we can reach out to larger companies and get them to use DeepSource. Yeah. And what has been tough about going on-prem? Right, so... We've kind of figured out most of these things, but the, but but primarily the toughest thing has been that, you know, it needs to work exactly the same way that it works on cloud. And a lot of things, when you, when you build a product from scratch, you don't really, even if you build your infrastructure in a way that, you know, you have to go on-prem someday, that, which is what we did, that a lot of application dependencies, which need to be figured out, you know, you need to figure out how you're going to sync your data for example, how you're going to manage analytics, how you're going to send that analytics event, a dump of those analytics events back to you. Because in in some environments that might not be allowed, right? And there can be some unexpected things that we take for granted. For example, if you're running a SaaS uh, SaaS company, uh, you might just just take SES or Mandrill for sending emails for granted or S3 for granted. But when you're moving to on-premise, you, act, you can't use that. So you need to have a solution on-prem, something like Minio maybe for, to, for S3. And then you need to figure out, okay, how do, how do you send emails without hitting Amazon SES, right? So most of the things have still been figured out. Like we use Kubernetes internally for our application orchestration. So it's very easy for us to package the application. But then some of these things, that point-based solutions that we internally use, we need to figure that out. In, in the end, when you ship your software to on-premise, right, it, it kind of becomes a black box because you don't get access as easily to the on-premise setup as you get access, as easily that you get access to your on-cloud. So it might become operationally very heavy to provide support or to debug things. So we will end up, you know, you need to end up building things to get that data out or get say logs out or figure out, okay, how do you debug when some things are are going on? So these are like the major pain points when you ship some software on-premise like we are doing right now. Did you look at any of these companies that help you with packaging like Replicated? Sure. So we are actually working with Replicated. We started around a month ago. So again, like when you look at, so how we started was like, there's this, they have this site called enterpriseready.io. So which kinds of lists, like these are the 10 things you should have if you're like taking your product on prem. So yeah, Replicator was a pretty good solution. I think it was used by companies like NPM and Travis. So yeah, we are working with them. And on our on our end as well, since we deal with source code for these large companies, security is very important. That's the only reason why they're looking for an on-prem, nothing else. So they don't want to ship their source code outside. So from the beginning, like we use like things like Kubernetes, uh, all of our infra is on Kubernetes. So using like you know we can basically reuse whatever we have and just package it with replicator so we just started the process ideally 
we should be able to like you know package something in the next one month or so but yeah it's a pretty good tool let's say i've already got my engineering workflow built out i've already got my continuous integration tools i've already got my static analysis tools how am i going to fit in another tool how what's the process of getting deep source into an existing workflow right so this is something that we had foreseen uh, when we started the company that uh, in addition to be to in addition to being very easy to use that that was a requirement it should also be very easy to set up initially right so let's say you are already using uh, and this is this is a general case this is how people use some open source static analysis tools today you have a ci setup you are either using a circle ci or github actions or travis and if you are using say something like python or javascript in javascript you are using eslint then you are either using eslint as a build step so that eslint or say something in python for example pylint that tool would fail if it finds an issue during uh, as a build step or you use pre commit hooks that before someone commits you run these checkers right so if you're using deep source you actually don't need to do any of these things you can just take these steps out and deep source itself is very easy to easy to configure so all you need to do if you're hosting your code on github you sign up using github on deep source the second step is you enable deep source on your organization if it's a team or your own personal account and that's that's pretty much about it the next step is you go to deepsource.io you look at your repositories will be automatically synced on deep source so you click on a repository we have a wizard that automatically generates these conf- this configuration as a single file so you enable this and that's it and the next step that will happen is the next pull request that you make deep source will start analyzing that pull request so in terms of the workflow your workflow does not change at all because you're anyways using a ci tool deep source runs in parallel to your ci we have our own orchestration we have our own runtime so you don't have to set up anything you don't have to install anything anywhere you don't have to do anything on your ci just in a couple of clicks you integrate and deep source will start running in parallel to your ci so if you already have something set up and if you don't want to throw your existing things out you can just start using deep source without doing anything without changing anything in your workflow and then later when you've seen value and that's how a lot of teams that use deep source do it later when you have seen value out of deep source you don't need to use any static analysis tools because deep source anyways covers everything that you anyways use before yeah there are these different generations of static analysis tools that have existed over the years. It seems like every two years, a new static code analysis tool emerges. What are the advantages you have of starting in 2018? Are there some technological adva- advances that have come that have made it easier or better to build a static analysis tool today? The technologies that we are using, and it might sound weird, but the technologies that we are using uh, today, like... AST parsing, abstract syntax trees, and uh, CSTs, concrete syntax trees for autofix. These have existed for quite some time, right? The technologies that we did benefit was, say, using things like Kubernetes, which allows us to segregate the analysis environment so that, you know, the clients that we have or the, the customers, our customers have complete security, 
right? In a previous generation, if we had built this, we probably would have used some shared uh, runtime environment. So that is one. But the primary thing that we did was, you know, we looked at the user experience. And there are a few things that, you know, for example, things like machine learning. So we do use some machine learning to learn from your behavior and prioritize issues based on what your previous behavior was. So there have been some new technologies that we are leveraging, of course, but the core to deep source has been there for, you know, for, for quite some time. Just that, you know, what we believe is existing companies who try to solve this or existing people who try to solve this, they did not push the limits of these technologies far enough. And that is something that we believe we are doing. We are trying to push the limits of static analysis. We are trying to push the limits of what can be done with technologies like CSTs to do order fix. And I think that's what has enabled us to do what we are doing today. What's the hardest engineering problem you're working on right now? Is it on-prem? At the moment, yes. And one other thing is improving coverage for all these issues because though 100%, 0% false positive is not quite possible yet, like at least that's the consensus, but yeah, trying to, you know, handle edge cases for, for all these specific special rules, all these rules we have, that is something that's like challenging. That's something which you are continuously working on to guarantee the less than 5% false positive rate. How do you measure the health of a code base? Right. So there are a few factors. When you say good code, or when you say the health of the code base, right, uh, there are two things. One, does your code base have these obvious problems? And these obvious problems could be performance issues, security vulnerabilities. And then there are some non-obvious problems like anti-patterns, structural problems, or you know the way that you have written code, the, the way that you have designed code, the way that you have organized your code. So that contributes to technical debt. And again, technical debt can be subjective and objective. We mostly deal with objective technical debt. And the second part is your key metrics of code. And again, these key metrics depend on teams, but some of these are, are generic. Like, so things, things like test coverage, things like documentation coverage, things like dependency hell, how many external dependencies do you have? And then there could be some specific things. For example, if you're shipping a, a front-end library or a CLI tool, you might want to ensure that your the, the size is capped. Like you can't ship a one MB JavaScript file because nobody's going to use it. So it generally depends. So some of these things are objective. Like, okay, are there any obvious security vulnerabilities? Are there any obvious anti-patterns or performance issues? The second part would be objective metrics. And the third part would be subjective kind of contextual metrics, depending on what you are building. And your code health then kind of becomes an aggregate of all these things. Do you have readability problems in your code? Do you have lack of documentation? Do you have lack of test coverage? And depending on your use case, do you have a super heavy CLI that you're shipping? Tell me about what's in the future for DeepSource. Where do you expect the company to grow into and expand into? Sure. So we like to think about this as, you know, the, what we are doing uh, at DeepSource. We like to think about it in three phases. The first phase is, again, the mission of the company is to help developers write good code. 
So how we think about it is in three phases. The phase one was to build a tool that helps developers find the issues in their code. And that's what we started with, you know, two years back. Phase two is automatically fixing most of these issues with human approval. And that is where we are today. We have an auto fix that we launched like six months back that helps you automatically fix issues in your code in a couple of clicks, right? Where we want to be in the future, in the next two or three years is our phase three, which we call auto fix on autopilot, right? What that looks like is if you're using deep source, deep source sits in your development workflow integrates with all these systems that you have. You have GitHub for your source code hosting. You have tools like Sentry for your bug tracking or you know crash reporting and other tools, right? DeepSource automatically, whenever you make changes to your code, DeepSource automatically figures out which issues that you're introducing can be fixed with, high, with very high reliability. And it'll just automatically go ahead and fix it without your approval. If it can't fix any issues automatically, then it'll show you that, hey, you need to fix this and this is how, right? And the third thing is, it'll automatically figure out which of these issues are of super high priority. So think about this, we integrate with something like Sentry and we know that, hey, this is where your code is breaking right now, right? And then we tell you that, hey, by the way, your code is breaking here these are the few issues that we think can cause this. We can automatically fix two of these issues. So DeepSource go, goes ahead and fixes those two issues and tells you that, hey, why don't you fix these three issues? So in the future, we believe that, you know, computers should help developers write good code. Like you have, like when you write English today on say Google Docs or Gmail and, and use things like Grammarly, it's very easy for you to write good English today with the help of, of the computer. In the future, we want DeepSource to enable developers to write good code as easily as it is right now, like today to, to write English. So that's kind of the long-term vision of the company. Well, that sounds like a good place to close off. So you think you'll be there in, uh, what, three to five years? Oh, absolutely. Well, guys, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot for having us.